0: You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. This passage of Scripture is unique because it is actually the text that I spoke on this past summer when I was given the just great opportunity, honored to be invited to speak at our national convention in Cincinnati. And so it was this second half of John chapter 12 that I I preached on there in Cincinnati at that convention. Um, And though the message is going to be similar because it's the same text and there's only one interpretation for God's Word, there's only one meaning from the text, it's going to be different because the setting and context I'm delivering it in is different. And so God's Word, there is one interpretation, one truth, one meaning that it has, but there are many applications to us and in our lives. And so when we read God's Word, we shouldn't read it and say, well, this to me this says, or to me this means, because it only says one thing. The application in your life may be different from the application in mine. And so there's one meaning, but many applications. And so the meaning is the same as when I preached it uh, a few months ago to Free Will Baptist leaders, but the setting and the application is different for us in this moment than it would be uh, to a group of Free Will Baptist leaders. Now, some of you tuned in and watched that actually live on Facebook, and uh, some of you, uh, you don't know anything that I'm talking about, but we're going to put that message on our podcast, and so if you'd like to listen to that and you can kind of see the same interpretation, same meaning, but different application in that setting, Uh, you can do that by listening on the podcast this week. You know what's beautiful about that? What's beautiful about that is that God's Word is for everyone. That wherever we're at, whatever it is that we're going through, whatever it is that we're facing, whatever our background, whatever brokenness we have, God's Word has an application for us. And so it's not that it was just written for a specific group of people, and it just applies. It was written among a specific group of people, but it applies to everyone. The gospel is for everyone. And in John chapter 12, there's a really good illustration of that. Because John chapter 12 is all about Jesus entering into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. In the passage that we looked at last week, Jesus has ridden into town. People are waving palm branches and crying out, Hosanna. It's this powerful moment. But then, right after this happens, some people come up because they want to see Jesus. So look at verses 20 and 21. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same, therefore, came to Philip, which was a Bethsaida of Galilee and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Now, a couple things about this, all right? The Passover feast was this huge feast that the Jews held, and we think probably a million, a million people would probably have made their way into Jerusalem. And some were Jews that lived in the surrounding villages and suburbs, but some were people who believed in the Jewish God but lived in other nations. And so these Greeks or possibly people who live far away, but they had come to believe in the God of Abraham, the God of of the Israelite people, and they've come to the Passover. And because of the things that they have heard about Jesus, they want to get closer, they want to see Jesus. And so while Jesus is a Jew, and he's in Jerusalem, and he's, he's speaking mainly to a Jewish audience, there are people that are far away who are in a different culture, a different context, a different setting, and they hear about what Jesus is doing and they want to see him. And, and if you're here today and you didn't grow up in church, you're not, you're not familiar with who, with who God is, I, I mentioned Abraham earlier and that you're not even, not even sure who that is, know that you don't have to be from the right place or the right family to see Jesus. These Greeks were from far away from a different culture, didn't grow up with this, but they get to see Jesus in this moment. And Jesus here says that there's coming a moment where he is going to be drawing all men unto himself. Not just these Greeks, but for everyone. Why? Because the gospel is for everyone. And and here's what that means, okay? There is no one in your life, no one in your circle of friends, no one at your job, no one in your family, that Jesus is not drawing unto Himself. He wants to bring every one of us into relationship with Him. The Bible tells us that he, it's His desire, His will, that none should perish without Him. He wants everyone to come to know Him. And even the person that seems like a hopeless case to you, even the person that seems so far gone, the gospel is for them as well. And as a pastor, I get to see God doing this all the time. I get to see how God uses what seem like random occurrences to a lot of people, which would seem like just circumstances and, and seem like coincidences that God's working. This past week, I was, I was getting my hair cut, and as I was getting my hair cut by Dan, who attends our church, he was, we were talking about this guy that we both know that we're concerned about, and, and he had talked to him, and I, I've been praying for him. He's been on my mind. And at that same moment, while we're having this conversation, Dan gets a message from somebody else who knows this guy and says, hey, I'm worried about so-and-so. Have you talked to them lately? You know what I see there? I see the fingerprints of God drawing someone to himself. And in every life, that's happening. What happens, though, is that we get in our minds this, this, this picture of what a Christian looks like, what a Baptist looks like, and, and, and we, we think that people who don't fit in that picture that is really there's, unlikely that they're going to come to Jesus, that it's really unlikely that they're going to really they're gonna respond to the message of Jesus, and that's not the case. Because what Jesus has done throughout the Gospel of John and what Jesus is doing here is he's appealing and he's drawing and he's reaching out to people who are not like him. Who are not like the religious leaders, the religious elite. Now, I've, got a, I've got a friend who's a, who's a pastor in Illinois. His name is Larry Lacefield. And Larry is just, he's hilarious. He's crazy. You can ask Pastor Eric. Pastor Eric's been around him. The guy, anytime you get to be around him, he's, he's, just, he's just a barrel of laughs. If people who were far from Jesus come up, it, it, it's like a different persona comes over Larry. And 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 he is just brokenhearted for anybody who's far from Jesus. And when he went to start his church in Granite City, Illinois, he said that it was his mission, his mission that whoever he came in contact with, he was going to be suspicious that Jesus was working in their life that when he met them, he was just going to be suspicious. He was making the decision ahead of time. He was going to be suspicious that Jesus was already working in, his life, in that person's life, and that was the reason that Larry had showed up. The reason that that's kind of baked into the heart and in the, the soul of Larry is that Larry was far from Jesus, and a stranger started talking to him at the mall and told him about Jesus, and that's how Larry became a follower of Jesus. And Larry's testimony is that after he became a Christian, he realized that all of these people he worked with and all of these people in his neighborhood, they were also Christians. And he was mad at them. Because none of them had told him about Jesus. It took this stranger who didn't know him at the mall to, to start that conversation with him. But Jesus was already working. Can I just, people in your life, Jesus is already at work behind the scenes. He's already at work behind the scenes. He's drawing them. And so these Greeks, they're in Jerusalem for Passover. They want to see Jesus. And so, Philip brings these Greeks to Jesus. And look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. We're going to come back to all of this. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into this hour. Instead, Jesus prays, the beginning of verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it, they said it thundered. And others said, an angel spoke. And Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, or not for my sake, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And then I want you to notice what the very next verse says. gives us clarification on that. This, he said, signifying the death of, He should die. Now this is an exciting moment. This is an exciting passage of Scripture because these Greeks have come to see Jesus and Jesus says, this is it. Now is the hour come that the Son of Man will be glorified. And Jesus has been saying throughout His ministry, the kingdom is near, the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is coming, but now He says the kingdom is here. Now is the moment. We're no longer waiting. It has arrived. But then Jesus starts saying these things that seem a little strange. He talks about a corn of wheat, a grain of wheat dying and going into the ground. He talks about being lifted up, but he's speaking of his death, that he should die. Now, for us, when we hear the phrase, be lifted up, that sounds like a positive thing, right? I'm going to lift up someone's spirits. I'm going to lift up the banner. I'm going to lift up the name of my team. And because that, that idea of lifting up is so positive, it was the... The theme for our national convention this past summer, and that was the reason they asked me to speak on this text. But when the people heard Jesus say this, they would, not have thir- they would not have thought of positive things. Because the phrase that Jesus is using is a common phrase in their vernacular for the most common instrument of death in their time, the cross. You see, Jesus lived in the time of the Roman government, the Roman rule. And as the Romans marched across the world, as they marched across the map, conquering nations and making people subject to them, they needed to kill a lot of people. And as they were killing a lot of people, they wanted that, those deaths, they wanted that work to have as much impact as possible. So they wanted those deaths to be public, so that they could show the people that they had just conquered that they were there and that they better not mess with the Romans. They wanted to intimidate them. And so they came up with a way to kill people that was not only scalable, that you could do it anywhere that you needed to, you could easily get the materials that you needed, but also put someone on a public display. And when they crucified someone, all they needed was two pieces of wood and three nails, a hole in the ground. They could come up with that just about everywhere that they went. And so the cross became this form of execution that was incredibly scalable. The Romans, because of their power, because of their might, they were able to to change cultures. But they did it through this subjugating of the nations that they conquered. Intimidation, forcing them to become a part of the Roman Empire. There's a similar situation during World War II. A gathering of Germans at a suburb outside of Berlin... They met in a mansion with some of the leaders and some of the sharpest minds, and what they had to figure out is, how are we going to kill all of these Jews? It's a logistical nightmare to get them all together and shoot them. So many bullets, and then you have to drag them out and bury them. And so they developed systems for how they would process, process them into camps, use them up, use all of their energy, basically starving them, but using all of the energy that they had stored in their bodies to do work that they needed, and then they would march them into gas chambers, where they could easily and effectively kill hundreds at a time. What the Romans had done is they had figured out a way that they could easily kill lots of people, but do it in a public way when the Romans would come and they would conquer a city or a village, they would often line the streets into the city or town with crosses of people dying. And so the cross was something that was common in their culture. They were familiar with it because the Romans had come in and subjugated them, had conquered them, and had used the cross to show how strong and mighty they were. And so when Jesus uses the phrase, be lifted up, it's a phrase that people are familiar with with their prisoners being lifted up, their soldiers being lifted up as the Romans crucified them. And so Jesus is not speaking about lifting up and glorification. He's speaking of crucifixion. And what he's making clear here in this passage is that his glorification will come through his crucifixion. That he will draw all men unto himself when he is lifted up on the cross. And when we know that, verses 24 to 28 make a lot more sense. So let's look back at verses 24 and 28. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about his death is going to bring about a lot of fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. And verse 27 makes so much more sense now that we understand what Jesus is talking about because he says in verse 20, now is my soul troubled. Why is his soul troubled? He knows that he's headed to the cross. He knows he's headed to the excruciating pain of the cross. But oh, it makes verse 31 so much clearer as well. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. When we think of Judgment Day, we think of a day that is coming after Christ's return. We think of a day that's coming after we die. We think of the final day. But Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. You know why that is? Because on that day that Jesus was crucified on the cross, that's when my judgment was poured out. That's when the punishment for my crimes and my sins was laid upon Jesus. That's when the judgment of my sins took place because He went on the cross. When I preached on this text in the Warwick County Jail, it occurs to me that what happens to inmates in our our jail system is, is similar to this. Because many times someone will go to trial, they'll be in jail because they can't get bonded out, they'll be in jail awaiting trial and they'll go to trial and they're found guilty. But they've been in jail for so long up to that point that the sentence that they're given has already been served. The punishment has already been put upon them. And so then at sentencing, they're free to go because they've already paid the price. There's going to come a day that all of us will stand before God. And if we have put our faith in Jesus, we, we will be found guilty of our sins. But the punishment has been placed upon Him. And so we are innocent and free to go. He has taken the punishment for us. He has paid the price on our behalf. On the other hand, there are people that they do get bonded out. And they await their trial and they fight against the charges against them. They do everything they can to be found innocent. And then they're found guilty and they have not served any time. And so in that minute, moment, they're sentenced and their punishment begins. And there are those that spend their lives avoiding Christ and rejecting Him and trying to avoid His judgment and His punishment, trying to avoid His call, His command, try to avoid His truth, and there will come a day when they face God in trial and are found guilty and their punishment has not even yet begun. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world, now is the prince of this world cast out. You know, the Jews were excited because they were hoping that Jesus was there to overthrow the Roman government. They were hoping that Jesus was there to bring the Jews into order so that they could mount up a a military offensive against the Romans and free themselves. They were hoping for a revolt, like we did when we rebelled against the British and we won our independence. That's what they're hoping that Jesus would do. But Jesus had his eyes not on Caesar, not on the Roman government, but on a principality or power that was beyond them. Jesus didn't have small intentions or small goals. Jesus did not want to win a fight in the locality or just in that time period. Jesus wanted to win a war against the devil who is at war with us in all places through all of time. And so by going to the cross, he has taken the punishment upon him. He's taken the penalty that we deserve upon him. And he has canceled out the works of the devil. And what is the greatest tool that the devil has? The greatest tool that he has is our accusation. Is to accuse us. And what did we sing a moment ago? No power of hell or scheme of man. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross and he took away the the weapons of evil. And now no power of hell or scheme of man can pluck us from His hand. Jesus does this by being lifted up on the cross through His crucifixion. That's the hour that He's come to. That's the moment He's come to. He's in the final week before His arrest, trial, and execution. But Jesus is not only clarifying to us how he will draw all men unto himself, he's also clarifying to us the call that he gives each one of us. Because what is it that he says to the disciples? He says to them, if any man will love his life, he will lose it, but if he will hate his life, he will keep it. The way that Jesus will win our freedom is paradoxical, it's counterintuitive, and the life that he calls us to is also paradoxical and counterintuitive. It's very similar to a passage in Matthew 16 where Jesus said to the disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. Our text here in John chapter 12 is all about Jesus' sacrifice it's about Him making the way for us to be restored to the Father. It's all about Him taking our sin. But it's a truth that He wants to see applied into our lives that we will walk away from this life and follow Him. And it seems backwards to us. Because Jesus tells us to live that we need to die. That we should gain our lives by losing them. He calls us to a multiplication through sacrifice. That's what Jesus calls us to, to forsake our lives, to turn from the life that we are living, to follow him. It's a, it's a lead for us to follow. When we go somewhere, my family and I, I typically lead the way because I know where it is I'm going or I've got a better bearing on directions, but also because I'm an impatient person. We took a vacation with my family a couple of years ago, and it was a great time. I I had a great time, so don't let this make it sound like I did not enjoy being with my family. Mom and dad, if you're listening to the podcast, this was a great vacation. But we would sit around the house and talk about what we were going to do next, and then we would sit around the house and we would talk about what we were going to do next, and then we decide what we we're going to do next, and then we sit around and talk about what we're about to do next. And when you have seven kids in the house that are under the age of seven, your windows are very small. Like, listen, one of them is about to go down, you know? There's going to be a diaper, or it's going to be somebody's nap time, or somebody's going to be hungry. Like, if we have an opportunity, we've got to go now. It's about the second day of vacation that I decided when we make a decision, I'm moving. I'm going. And I'm I'm not exaggerating. My wife can bear witness. There were a couple of times that I was in the car leaving and everybody else was still getting dressed. And I'm like, I will see you there. Because I knew that if I didn't do that, we would still be there at the house. Nothing would have happened. We would never made any motion. And so I'm leading the way, and it's it's kind of just born out of my impatience. What Jesus is telling us here is that he's going to the cross, but he's also showing us the way. He's, he's taking the initiative. He's showing us what it is that he's calling us to. He's showing us but that by rejecting this life, we can live for the next. We can move on to what it is that God intended for us. But for that to happen, we've got to get up. We've got to walk away. And what we see among the disciples is that's what they did. Peter walked away from his fishing boat to follow Jesus. Matthew walked away from his collecting table to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus turned from his dishonesty and greed to follow Jesus. The rich young ruler did not follow Jesus because he could not turn from his riches. There was a man who did not follow Jesus because he couldn't leave behind a team of oxen. Let me ask you, what have you left behind to follow Jesus? Now, there's nothing that you have to leave behind so that you can follow Jesus. But if you're following Jesus, just by practicality, there's something that's going to be left behind. We don't earn our relationship with Jesus by leaving things behind. But when we follow Jesus, things just get left behind. That's what happens. But if there's something that we won't let go of, that we can't walk away from, that we refuse to give up, We'll not be walking with Jesus. We'll be planted right there. And that thing that we love will become the anchor that sinks us, that plants us in the middle of our mess and keeps us lost. We want to journey with Jesus, but just so long as it's on the way that we're going. Since moving to to Chandler Many years ago, I've learned what it means to go to town when you're going to Evansville. I'm going to Evansville. Do you need anything? There was a a guy that I was in college with, and he was from a small town. And I remember every time he would leave the dorm, he would say, I'm going to town. Do you need anything? Even though we were in the middle of town. But it was just something that he was used to because he lived in a rural community in North Carolina. And when you're going to town, when you're going in to Evansville, you're going to do all the things there that you need to do. If there's any other errands that need to be accomplished, if we need something, let's get it while we're there. I'm afraid that we we treat following Jesus the same way. That we'll follow Jesus if if He's on the way. If He's headed in the direction we were already going. If He's going to take us the way that we were already planning to go. But when that moment comes that Jesus is headed this way and we're headed this way, we've got to decide if we're going to follow Jesus and leave this behind or we're going to follow our path and leave Jesus behind. Jesus says there will be times that you have to leave behind your very life. You have to take up your cross, your instrument of execution. You will have to reject all. All of this world, there can be nothing that is of higher value to you than Jesus. He must be first and foremost. When Jesus calls these men to follow him, they lay down their very lives, they leave everything behind. This is the call of discipleship to leave this world behind and follow Jesus. And I'm not going to stand up here before you and say that it's easy. I'm not going to pretend that following Jesus is just a bowl of cherries. It can be very difficult. And some of you are walking through situations right now where you're the only person in your family that's following Jesus, and you're ridiculed because of it. Some of you are following Jesus, and you're the only person in your circle of friends that is following Jesus, and they don't understand why you don't participate in the things that you used to participate in. But I want to remind you that Jesus has shown you the way. And that when Jesus suffered, when he was facing great suffering and affliction, when his soul was troubled, like your soul is troubled right now, as you're you're facing this difficulty and this adversity of following Jesus in a world that is not following Jesus, remember what Jesus prayed. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this hour came I. What does he pray instead? Father, glorify thy name. Jesus says, my soul is troubled because the cross is looming just around the corner. He knows the pain and suffering that he is about to experience. He says, but what am I going to pray? Am I going to pray that God saves me from this hour? Am I going to pray that the Father saves me from this moment? This is the reason I came. I came for the cross. I came to die on the cross, to take the punishment and penalty for sin. Why would I pray that God save me from this moment? So instead, he prays, Father, glorify thy name. And when we feel that tension, when we feel that fork in the road, where following Jesus means going this way, but everyone else is headed this way. When following Jesus means heading this way, but our desires, our lust, our flesh, our greed wants to take us this way. When we feel this tension, we should not say, "God, God save me from this hour. God, I don't want to choose." We should not pray, "God, I want can I have my cake and eat it too? Can I have both?" Don't pray that. We have come to follow Jesus for moments like this so that he can lead us away from those things that would distract us from him. We've come to follow Jesus so that He can lead us away from that greed, that lust, all of that sin that has messed up our lives. This is the very moment that we need Jesus, that we should follow Jesus. So instead of praying, God save me from this tension or this difficult decision, rather instead follow Jesus and say, may your name be glorified that my life is different. That I'm not just walking along the path that I was going to walk anyway and calling myself a Christian. But rather, when it comes to it, I'm following you. Because if you're not following Him, who are you following? You're following yourself. And I don't know about you, but I found myself to be quite the awful deity. I'm not a God worth worshiping, I'm not a guide worth following. Anytime I follow my instincts, my thoughts, my desires, my wants, it leads me into trouble and harm. So in those moments, let let us follow Jesus. And then what does Jesus say? If any man serve me, verse 26, if any man serve me, let him follow me. And then what is the byproduct of that? And where I am... There shall my servant also be. When we follow Jesus, you know what we get? We get Jesus. We get to be with Jesus. And that is far better than anything this world could deliver on. When we serve Him, when we take the cross, we're with. You know, we want everyone here at our church to grow in groups and serve on teams because we're built for relationships. We need connections with other people. And we want you to grow in groups and serve on teams so that when you come to those moments, you can see that not only is Jesus down this path, but there are other people who are trying to follow Jesus that you can walk with, that you can journey with. But there are going to be times, there are going to be moments in your life that nobody knows the turmoil and the tension and the difficulty that you're facing. There will be times that Pastor Daniel doesn't know. There will be times that your closest friend doesn't know, even if they are a believer. But you know who knows? Jesus. He's there with you. Because Jesus is no rear admiral. He's a field general. You know what a rear admiral does, right? rear admiral does. He, he, He stays behind the lines. He stays back from the fighting, and he tells his troops where they should go out there on the front. Jesus is the God who came to be with us, to suffer among us, to experience temptation like us. He is a general who is on the field next to us. He's with us. And when we follow him, we get to be with him. You know how I know that he's in the thick of this? Because in my life, in my work to to try to share the gospel and draw men unto Jesus, Jesus promises that he will be right there in the midst drawing men unto himself. There's a moment in the Lord of the Rings where Bilbo Baggins says, I feel thin, sort of stretched. Like butter scraped over too much bread. You ever felt like that? Just not enough of you to go around. Just too much bread, not enough butter. I felt like that. I felt like that a lot this past year. I don't know many of you have too. And what I'm tempted to do in those moments is I'm, I'm tempted to read up on techniques of how we can spread butter more efficiently. I can use my time more effectively. I'm tempted to just cut the bread in half and throw it in the garbage. And there's probably times in our lives that we need to do those things. But I'm learning afresh and anew that we we just need to trust Jesus. That he'll cover the bread. That's the reason he came. And even in the most difficult of moments, he didn't pray for escape. He prayed that God would be glorified. After all, the payment for my sin was too much for me to cover. And he came to cover it for me. That's what he did. Let's bow our heads for a word.